Chapter 16 of A Girl of High Adventure This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Girl of High Adventure by L.T. Mead The Fear of the Soleilang The coal merchant was a man of his word. He was hard and cruel and unkind, but in his own way he was proud of Tiddy. Those people whom he was most proud of he liked to train, and he was under the impression that he trained his daughter Matilda very well. When he beat her, which he did constantly, when he scolded her, he quoted to himself the old words, Spare the rod and spoil the child. He felt he was following in the footsteps of Hollywood. He taught himself a very blessed man. Now, in addition to all this scolding and beating on the part of the coal merchant with regard to Matilda Reigns, there was also a strange feeling of absolute indifference towards her stepmother. Her stepmother's name was Herbert, and Joshua Reigns thought very little of Herbert. In consequence, he left her alone. She was only useful in the matter of helping him to train Matilda, but he never fussed over his second wife, and, as far as possible, let her go her own way. Herbert Wins quickly discovered that nothing excited Joshua Wins so much as to talk about Tilly. More in especial to talk against Tilly. He used to listen with his staring eyes fixed on his wife's face and say, good little woman, and then go upstairs and prove things to his own satisfaction and beat Tilly because he loved her enough to consider beating his answer. She will be a very rich woman by and by, for the coal merchant did a thriving business and all his money he put by for Tilly. That was the one joy of his life. He could hurt her and torture her and yet in his cruel, an accountable way, she was the only creature he loved. He was quite determined, however, to get to the bottom of the Ivy story. If the thing was true, the girl who put on airs and kept a sob so be publicly disgraced, and he would do it. He would enjoy doing it very much. He couldn't hurt the little shopkeeper, not physically, at least, but he could make her feel bad and this he was determined to do. Mr. Desmond thought feel bad, too. Versuf. What name did Tilly call him? The, if you please. He had never heard of anything so ridiculous in his life. He was soon knocked out of the old comedian. It was a calm night when Joshua Vince took the boat from Fisgard to Vosler. He did not go through the miseries his child had undergone and he steamed away through the calm waters in the boat at least three times the size. He had never been in Ireland in his life before. And when he arrived at Vosler, was much bothered with the tongue employed by the good-natured country folks. He said, Eh, eh, what do you want to tell me? Over and over again. He told each individual he met that the said individual was stony deaf and also dark. The average person 
be it man or woman. Gershwin or Galin, objected to his manner, refused to be considered deaf and dumb when he conceived the beautiful tongue. The Ivis Bedad, to say nothing of that paltry tongue, the English. Josfa felt himself getting closer and closer each moment. What was he to do? How was he to hold up? How was he to find the man called Desmond who had spoken evil things of his Tilly? He did not in the least admire the beauty of the country. He had no eye for the green of the Emerald Isle, nor her lofty mountains, nor her flowing streams and rushing rivers. He talked so angrily that people left him alone and the train that so have taken him to Mallow went off without him. He might have lingered at Waterford goodness knows how long, waiting for a man of the name of Desmond and trying to talk to stone-deaf and dumb people, who only talked gibberish, when a bright-eyed, sparkling-looking individual came suddenly on the platform, stared at Joshua, said a few words to the people round and presently came up and introduced himself. I am told you are looking for the Desmond, he said. You won't find his high, great mightiness standing in a bit of a sandy like this. I am a Lachi Desmond, son of the Desmond. I just had a big sale of horses this morning and I'm going back to Desmond Town in a quarter of an hour. If you want to see the Desmond, I uh, no manner of objection. I want to see Mr. Desmond of Desmond Town, said the co-merchant. They isn't such a person, Mr. Desmond. For the Lord's sake, man, you are mighty innovant. Am I, sir? Well, I don't want you to tell me what I am and what I am not. Then you listen to me, said Malachi. The Desmond is next door to a king, and he lives in his kingdom, and I'm his son, Malachi. Be the powers. I wonder if you're the father of that nasty little bit thing that stuck pins in the saddle of starlight. I will not be a scrap surprised if you were, nor flustered neither. You got the same malicious gleam of the eye. You have cats at Desmond Town and I'm one. You are a very big cat, said Joshua. Well, I'm one when I like. Do you want to see the Desmond or do you not? There isn't such a name, it is silly, said the co-merton. Don't you talk in that sort of way in all Ireland, said Malachi. For at a wing from me, the cat. You have all the boys out with their sleighless. You best be careful what you say in our country. The Desmond is the Desmond, and he is the royal king of Desmond Town. By the same token, here's our twin. Are you coming along with me or are you not? I'm coming along, said Joshua. I am a man of my word. It's a wild, bad country. But I'm coming along all the same. I want to knock the out of a certain person and I'll do it my own way. We'll see about that, said Malachi. Remember the big cat never sleeps. Oh, you're all mad in this dreadful place, said Joshua. I can't make out what you are driving at, but I'll come with you, for I think I can take down your pride a bit. Oh, to be sure, that's a fine thing to do said Malachi. Here's an empty third-class carriage we can have all to ourselves. You might begin pulling out my pride at once. 
it starts very deep. Its roots go far and they twist and they turn. And by the powers, they twist and turn again. But if you give a long pull and a strong pull, maybe you'll have some of them out before I begin to scratch. The coal merchant was now quite certain that Malachi was mad, but he kept his object well in view and determined not to sow outward fear of him. They started on their journey, and before they got to Marlow, Joshua discovered two things about Malachi. First, that he could understand his language, and second, that he was a real clever man. For nothing so thoroughly impressed the coal merchant with cleverness as the sight of gold and nose. Malachi pulled out a quantity of money from his pocket. In fact, some hundreds of pounds. This money had been paid partly in notes and partly in sovereigns and was given for a horse called Novad Krena and another horse called A Bit of Herself and another horse again called Brian the Brave. He had made well on these horses but he was very sorry to part with Brian the Brave. Joshua sat and looked at the man. He looked also at the goat and began to respect him. At Mellow, they changed twins and again were lucky enough to have one to themselves. Then Malachi bent forward and said in a grave and very determined voice, Now, what may you be wanting to see the Desmond for? He's not the Desmond, said Joshua. He is. Let that drop. Anyhow, what do you want to see him for? He has turned my child out of his house. He told her to go and she was all but drowned on the deep sea. She stuck ten pins into the cedar of starlight, remarked Malachi. She did it to injure our poor skin. It was proof against her and she couldn't deny it. If your name is Reigns, you're a great horseman. I take it. Horseman? Not I. I never sat on a horse in my life. Dear, to be sure, your girl wrote elegant. Did she? Answered Vince, feeling a little proud in spite of himself. She did that. She wrote like a sylph. I didn't think at first she had it in her, but she was like a bird on starlight. You see, it was this way. I was having one of my cast noodles in starlight's loose box. Starlight wasn't properly broken in at that time, and I was mighty feared to put any young girl on him who didn't understand the nature of the beast. You were right there. Growled Reigns. Well, so I thought I was. And when your big girling come and said to me, let me write Starlight, I said, no, I value your precious life too much. Quite right too, quite right too, said Joshua. Then you see, she was a bit pulled up, and no wonder with her gift for writing. And she came slipping into the stable and never saw me having my cat slip in the loose box. And she fetched down the saddle that had just come from Cork City for a little bit of a pool skin. And if you'll believe me, she stuck ten pins into it. Yes, ten. Everyone I reckoned. I kept both my eyes wide open and she went away humming to herself and as pleased as punch. Then I took nine of the pins out. For what was the good of injuring the beautiful creature more than was necessary for my purpose? And I told her she might have a ride on starlight if Pushkin would lend her her new saddle. You may be quite certain that she was not behindhand in that, was Pushkin. She's the best natural little lambkin 
that old Ireland has ever seen. So I mounted mistily on starlight and rode Brian the Brave myself. And there was only one pin in the saddle, but I contrived it proper to pierce the height of the creature. Oh, but she rode like a bird, like a bird, and I was ashamed of myself for misstopping her. And then we've talked of all the famous rangers of England, who took every prize worth mentioning in your queer sort of country. And she said she was hurt at me for doubting her. And of course, when I knew she was one of those rangers, I was altogether up a tree. Yes, to be sure, that I was. Well, what do you think? All of a sudden, she lets out a squeeze. And a motor car. The day is on contrivance. Cars lashing and roving round the corner. And Starlight stood bolt upright on his hind legs and I helped Missy to a soft fall on the roadside. Then I made her tell the Desmond, Mr. Desmond, if you please, said Reigns. I made her tell the Desmond the story, and he said she was to go and go at once, and she did go. And Flanagan, our good Protestant curate, saw her off, and that's all I can tell you about her. She's not altogether a very nice child, even though she's a Reigns of England. But I can't make out for the life of me what you are wanting at Desmond Town. You may as well tell me, for I may be able to help you. I am most bitter ashamed of telling, said Vince, when the other man had ceased speaking. She has told a sucking lot of black lies. For her wanting to injure and perhaps kill the little shopkeeper is perhaps the worst of all. The little shopkeeper? My word! What next? I'm coming to that in a minute or two, said Vince. She was a bad little piece and I'll punish her according. And I'll punish her still more for the lies she told about us and horses. Why? Man, I'm a coal merchant. That's what I am. I'm making my power and a goodly one it will be if the Lord spares me. But we don't any of us know any more about horses than you know how to act the cat. We are nothing but co-merchants. That's what we are. Well, there's nothing wrong in that, said Melody. It seems a pity she descended to lies. But now whatever is your business with us, Mr. Beans, I'll come for the express purpose of exposing that young girl you make such a fuss about. She was nothing at all but a little shopkeeper at all, and you set her up to be a fine lady. She wasn't no shopkeeper at all, said Melody. I don't know what you are talking about. Well, but I do. And I will come over all this long way for the express purpose of having it cleared up. I'll punish my Tilly and I will punish her more. There came a time in my life when I thought to make a fine lady of my Matilda and I sent her to, our, to the school of a woman who called herself a princess. But Tilly will never be a lady. She will keep in her father's station and have to be content. Now, I'll listen to patience in your story, and I'm very angry indeed with Michael. But there's no doubt, whatever that right is right, whether it's on the left side or the right. And that's how you think such a power or spends her time at all selling hats and dresses. She's the little shopkeeper. That's what she is. She has sold hats and dresses to my girl, and that's how my girl knows. 
We're nearly at home by now, said Melody. Phineas Manerly will have his bit of a card waiting for us. I'll look into this manner for you, Mr. Mr. Wins. You keep it dark until I give the word. You're certain sure you won't act the cat on me? Said Wins. No, no. As will have to be a very wide awake cat to act that little game on you. I'm going to ask Phineas Manerly to put you up for the present and I'll be round when the moment comes that you wish to tell my father. I don't know that I want to put up for the night at the house of the man you call Phineas Manerly. You couldn't do better. His house is clean of the clean, and Annie, his wife, will give you her bedroom and sleep along of the children, and himself lay on the settee near the fire. Now then, here we are. I expect you are a bit hungry. There ain't one in the countryside for frying eggs and bacon to compare with our Annie. Hello, Phineas. Here you are. The funny little springless card was brought up. Mlati had a short and very earnest conversation with Phineas, who gave one very solemn twitter of his eyelid but made no further comment of any sort whatsoever. Presently, the three men got underway and Vince, who rarely felt himself very tired, not to say exhausted and ravenously hungry, began to turn his attention with keen desire to Annie's eggs and bacon. Malachi parted company with Vince at the broken-down gate of Demonstown. He assured Vince that he will have a word with him that evening, and left him in the complete care of Phineas, who talked the entire way to the cottage of the power of the celebrated Selayla. We all dance holy, he said. It was mass a man's prince out while he was a-thinking. Every man in this past case ran. They're better than any guns I've heard tell on. Vince felt decidedly uncomfortable. He ventured to ask what said a solar like was, but Phineas' reply was, They're men for killing. It don't matter the same. To be sure now, any Maronin. Here's a gem from England. Own father to that dear little Miss Teddy. He's met with the hunger. We'll get him as many new laid eggs and vessels of bacon and bread and butter and fresh milk and cream and tea as you think he can swallow. Don't overdo the man, but do him well, for the sake of dear little Miss Tilly. Annie felt very much inclined to say that she was never dear little Miss Tilly to her, but there was a look in her husband's face which caused her to keep herself to herself. Accordingly, the childer was swept off of the room. Wayne's from England was given the only decent bedroom in the house, and presently Annie appeared with a great tray, which contained half a dozen fried eggs, as many vessels of home-cooked bacon, bread and butter, and a great jar of milk, besides with cream and tea. That will do, said Wayne's, who felt almost sinking from sheer exhaustion. Annie went away and commented with her husband. Wayne's ate until he could eat no more, and then thought he couldn't do better than explore the premises a little. But he was met at the doorway by no less a person than Phineas himself. Phineas was twirling his salila in the air, and it certainly looked a weapon that could not be trifled with, that is, if it was turned against you. I would like to try it, said Vince, somewhat timidly. 
You try it. You, you don't know the swing of the thing. You has to be out in the air in the first place, and the next you has to be swinging through the air with a sort of a twist, and then down it comes. Quack. Oh well, I don't mind about it," said Vince. "I'm a harmless man. I don't want to hurt anybody. I'm just going out for a bit of a stroll." "Oh, you ain't," said Phineas. "You stay just where you are until you've spoken your mind and the devils again of a little Miss Paskin. The gentlemen will come to see you all in good time. And as soon as ever they have gone." I have the greatest pleasure in life in bringing you back to the railway station, about you can take ship for England, and you and your low-down girl Tilly can meet again. I tell you, I tell you," said Vince, almost stupid with rage, "that the little miss you make such a fuss about is only come out in the yard and tell me about me there," said Phineas. "No, I won't. Not while you hold that thing in your hand. I'm not going out without it." So don't you think it? And I am standing just here to prevent your taking a fair leap underneath. Oh, little powers, we are all right now. I'm thinking. Here's Master Manatee and himself coming across the fields. They'll be here in no time. Is he the only one they call by the ridiculous name of the? Aspins. Time ridiculous. This now. Hide your innards if you can. They have sailors as well as we. You stick up to him. I'm not afraid," said Joshua. "To be sure, you aren't. How could the father of Tilly Marvinin be afraid? That's what I'm thinking," said Vince. "Ah, Tin, gentlemen, here you be. Welcome to my hovel, the Desmond, a store. Welcome." Master Melody, the den is getting a bit restive. He's anxious to see you, to relieve a burden on his mind. I am, and I don't like those sticks you hold," said Vince, the man who, for the time being, had adopted the name of the Desmond, was in reality Fergus, the heir to the ancient title. He immediately laid his stick on the table. Phineas went out into the yard whistling. Melody shook hands with Vince, as though he was his oldest and dearest friend, whom he had not met for at least twenty years. I hope you are feeling comfortable, sir," he said. "Very much so," replied Vince. "If I may get a breath of the air and not be frightened to death by that queer man, I want to walk over to Desmond Town to see Mister Desmond. I brought him to you," said Melody. "Here's the Desmond." Be careful you don't anger him, or he may waste the stick. Certainly, Vince never felt in a poorer case. Fergus, who already was well acquainted with the story of his beloved little Margaret, allowed Vince to relieve his feelings. Looking at him with his steady dark eyes and his calm, unemotional face, Melati was as usual, all twinkles and smiles. Vince told his story very badly and. When he came to an end, Fergus rose to his feet and said in his refined, gentlemanly voice, "Well, now, there is no news to me. It's the fancy that grandmother's doing and must be put a stop to. I'll see that it is put a stop to, and I'm greatly obliged 
to you for telling me the whole story from first to last, so graphically as you have done. Mr. Mr. Vince, I'm obliged to you, Mr. Desmond, said Vince. That's right, call me anything you like, and not particular. The kite is at the door. We had best be starting. If you want to catch your twin, said Phineas. Oh, yes, yes, cried the Comerton, who was only too terribly anxious to get out of the land of the Salila. Phineas and he were soon driving rapidly in the uncomfortable cart to the railway station. He never felt so pleased in his life as when he got into the train. He was heard to remark to one or two farmers on his return journey that the Desmond, ridiculous name, looked a very young man. The farmers that but made no comment. Thus did Malachi and Fergus save their father from a sock, which would have undoubtedly half killed him. For the Irish pride is like no other pride. It sinks into the heart. It is the very vitals and has been known many and many a time to destroy life. The end of The Fear of the Salila.